Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 45. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. He said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, and thank you, Emily, Lauren, Helen, Judy, and Evan for leading us this morning. We're in week two of our sermon series on Mark called Follow Me. 
Last week, Pastor Jeff kicked things off by asking us three questions. Do you remember what these three questions were? These three questions and their answers were, who are we following? Jesus, the Son of God. Where are we going? Into the kingdom of God. Into the rule of God. And what will the journey be like? The same as it was for Jesus. Full of service, opposition, and testing. And so this week, as we go into the second half of chapter 1, as we explore how Mark continues his gospel, we'll continue to explore this theme of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, when I was growing up, one of the worst things that you could call someone was to call them a follower. If, if you had a friend who copied you, you might say, you're such a follower, to emphasize how original you were and how uninspired they were. To call someone a follower was to basically tell them that they couldn't think for themselves, that they weren't unique, that they weren't innovative, that they were low on the totem pole of high school. To, to call someone a follower was just one of the worst things that you could just say to someone. And even today, you know, as we, as we think about the idea of following, we still think of following as something that's not desired. Some of us measure ourselves by how many followers we have on Twitter and on Instagram. You know, we've really made it if we have 100 followers. And if we have 1,000 followers, you know, we're, we're basically the person, right? And, you know, even in the business world, following is kind of looked down on. There was a Forbes.com article that wrote, if you're a slave to the status quo, lack vision, or don't motivate everyone around you to be their absolute best, then you're a follower. Our culture says, emphasizes individuality, emphasizes being a leader, emphasizes not following. It says, don't be a follower. If you're a follower, you might as well be a slave. Learn to think for yourself. And yet, if you think about it, we all follow something or someone in some way, shape, or form. Who do you follow? Maybe you follow Apple computers. Or maybe you follow Warren Buffett. Or maybe you follow BTS. <laughs> if you don't know who BTS is, you can ask someone uh, under the age of 18 later, and they'll tell you. And as we think about who we follow, let's also consider these questions. Why do we follow them? And how does following them affect our lives? We might follow Apple computers because we want to keep up to date with the latest technological innovation. We might follow Warren Buffett because, you know, he's a really wise guy in terms of investments and we want to be wise with our money as well. Or we might follow BTS because their singing and their dancing bring us happiness. And today as we look at Mark chapter 1 verses 21 through 45, we look at what does it mean to follow Jesus? And as we think about following Jesus, we're going to ask the same two questions, which are, why do we follow Jesus? And how does following Jesus affect our lives? So let's start with the first question. 
Why do we follow Jesus? At the very beginning of our passage, in the first little uh, story, we find that we follow Jesus because Jesus has all authority. In verse 21, Jesus has just arrived in Capernaum with his disciples, and he immediately goes into the synagogue and begins to teach. And when he teaches, all the people around him are astounded by the authority that he has when he teaches. No one, not the Pharisees, not the teachers of the law, no one that they've ever heard has taught the way that Jesus taught. Now we know now about Jesus' divinity. We know now that Jesus is the Son of God, God who is the source of all scripture. And so it makes sense that Jesus would be able to teach with authority. It'd be like listening to your English teacher uh, talk about nuance in Shakespeare versus having Shakespeare himself time travel and tell you exactly what he meant. Or it'd be like listening to your history teacher explain why Abraham Lincoln uh, did what he did uh, for, at, during certain periods of the Civil War versus having Lincoln himself explain his underlying motivation. Or it'd be like going to Google and asking the millions of people out there what the song lyrics of your favorite band mean versus hearing from the songwriters themselves what they were trying to say when they wrote those lyrics. Jesus was God. Jesus was the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he had authority to teach scripture. And that's something that the people in Mark chapter 1 just couldn't understand. They knew something was different, but they didn't realize the authority that Jesus had rested in him being the Son of God. And as we continue the story, we see some irony show up. Because right then, a man with an unclean spirit shows up. And the man starts screaming at Jesus. The man starts saying, Jesus, I know who you are. I know you and me, we're in total opposition to one another. The unclean spirit says, I know you have the power to destroy me. And he calls him the Holy One of God. Now this phrase, the Holy One, appears 13 times in the Old Testament. 11 in Isaiah. And every single time you see this phrase, the Holy One, it's clearly and unambiguously talking about Yahweh, God, the Creator, the One who sustains all things. And so the irony is the people see that Jesus teaches with authority, but don't quite understand why, and it takes a demon to recognize that Jesus is God, Jesus is King, Jesus is the one who has all authority. Jesus is the one who has the authority, who, who has the authority over the power structures of evil. Jesus is the one who, when he tells the demon to leave the man, the demon has no choice but to obey because Jesus has authority over him and all the power structures of evil. And this authority makes Jesus unique in history. No other founder of any major religion showed the authority through his actions or could even claim the authority that Jesus claimed. Not Moses, not Mohammed, not Buddha, not Confucius. All these other leaders pointed to authority outside of themselves, tried to point to truth outside of themselves. But Jesus pointed to himself. Jesus said, I am the ultimate way. I am the ultimate truth. I am the ultimate authority. And this authority gives us confidence as we seek to follow Jesus. Our faith in Jesus' authority gives us confidence that we're going to make it 
to where Jesus is bringing us when we follow him. We have certainty that Jesus' authority enables us to overcome the obstacles that get in our way as we're seeking to follow him. Because Jesus is the one who has all authority. It's like trying to start a club in high school and not being able to find a faculty advisor, right? And then you suddenly hear that the superintendent of the school system sees your club as integral to the high school, integral to the educational experience. And suddenly you know that your club, your idea for this club is going to succeed because you have the authority of the superintendent behind you. Or it's like being given a task by the CEO of your company. Sometimes at work, you don't know whether a project is going to lose funding and whether you're going to be cut, but when the CEO gives you a project or a task, you know you have the support of the company. You know that you ha you'll have funding to make sure that you're able to finish what it is that you've been given to do. And we see this in the Great Commission, too. You know, Matthew 28, Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. But what does he couch that in? He couches that by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so Jesus, who has all authority, is both the reason why we follow him and also the means by how we follow him. And so Jesus has all authority. He has all power. He's sovereign over all things. And he shows this through casting out demons. He shows this, this through healing. And word starts to get out, right? We see later in verses 33 and 34, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now, this last phrase is a little bit curious, right? Why would Jesus not let the demons, the demons who actually knew that he was not only sent from God, but was God, why would he not let the demons tell everyone else about him? I mean, why was Jesus trying to be more, 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 so secretive? Didn't Jesus want to be successful in getting the word out about who he was? I mean, it'd be like if you were starting a restaurant in Boston, and just as things start, you know, you're starting to get some customers, you shut down the restaurant and go hike out to the White Mountains. Because that's what Jesus did, right? As soon as he got popular, he disappeared and went into the wilderness to pray. And when Jesus disappeared, what happens? Peter goes off looking for him. And Peter's looking for him, not like, not like saying, you know, I wonder where Jesus could be. No, Peter is frantically looking for him. He's trying to hunt him down. Peter's thinking, things are finally looking up. People are responding to this message. Where could Jesus be? How could Jesus be so irresponsible as to disappear right when it seems like his mission is starting to succeed? And when Peter finally finds Jesus, Peter says, everyone is looking for you. Where have you been? Don't you want to do what it is that you said you were supposed to, you were coming to this earth to do? It kind of doesn't make sense why Jesus was so secretive, right? Well, we see in John chapter 6 two reasons why Jesus might have been so secretive. In verse 15, John writes, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. One of the reasons why Jesus may have hid himself was because he knew people didn't have the right conception of who the Messiah was supposed to be. Now, most of you guys probably know Israel was under the rule of the Roman Empire at that time. 
the rule of a non-Jewish authority, the rule of a people who didn't worship God. And so people were looking to the promise in the Bible of the Messiah as a promise of someone who would free them from this oppression, who would overthrow this foreign power, who would reestablish Israel back to its former glory with kings descended from David. And Jesus had the authority to do this, right? Jesus could have established this earthly kingdom in Israel once again because he was God. But that's not why Jesus came to this earth. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish a heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so this misconception is one reason why Jesus may have hidden himself. Because Jesus wants us to follow him, not who we want him to be. Later in John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with, miraculously with five loaves and two fish, we see potentially another reason where Jesus tells the crowds, very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, it makes sense why people would be trying to follow him, right? I mean, following Jesus had some benefits. If you were being oppressed by an evil spirit, Jesus, Jesus could take care of that for you. If you had some terminal illness or you had a relative who had some terminal illness, Jesus could take care of that for you. And we still, you know, today, we go to God in prayer with our wants and our needs related to, you know, finding a boyfriend or girlfriend, finding a spouse, finding a job. When we seek healing, when we're suffering from illness, But Jesus is saying, Jesus later in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is pointing to himself as the spiritual bread that they should be seeking. The bread that is permanent. Not the bread that they ate during the miracle. A bread that even though miraculously was here one moment and gone the next. We follow Jesus himself and not the benefits of following. And we saw this earlier in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus said to Peter and, and, uh, Peter and Andrew, follow me. Don't follow the benefits of following me, which disappear. Follow me. But, you know, seeking those benefits is so tempting. A study in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion uh, recently wrote, two in ten Bible readers turn to scripture for health insights and three in ten for wealth insights. Overall, Evangelical Protestants, that's you and that's me, overall evangelical Protestants were more prone to a health and wealth approach to the Bible as were Americans with higher religious involvement. In particular, those who reported literal interpretations of scripture and those who pray regularly were more likely to direct their reading towards health and towards wealth. But is this what we're called to when we follow Jesus? Did Jesus even promise us health and wealth? Because you see, health and wealth are just as temporary as that bread that Jesus used to feed those people when he fed the 5,000. You know, Jesus did a lot of miracles while he was on this earth. Not only did he heal people, he raised people from the dead, including Lazarus. But you all know what happened to Lazarus later, right? It's not recorded in the Bible. But I'm pretty sure Lazarus still 
died. But all these things that we see that Jesus did, all these ways that God blesses us, they're not ends in and of themselves. They're given to us to point us towards Jesus. Because Jesus wants us to follow him and not the benefits of following him. So we've seen that we follow Jesus who has all authority. And we follow Jesus himself, not the temporary benefits of following him. And that answers the first question we asked, right? Which was, why do we follow Jesus? Or in the, sec- in the case of the temporary benefits, why don't we follow Jesus? But we still haven't answered, how does following Jesus affect our lives? And for that, we turn back a few verses to verses 19 to 21. Or sorry, 29 through 31. Where, Peter, where we see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. You can picture the scene, right? Peter's mother-in-law is lying down in her bed, motionless, almost as if she was dead. Still breathing, though, but not really responsive. Friends and relatives are in the house. They're worried. They're anxious. Is this going to be the last day? Or is she going to somehow make a miraculous recovery? It doesn't look good. A lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of grief. And then Jesus walks in the door. And suddenly someone thinks, you know, Jesus was able to cast that demon out of the the man in the synagogue earlier. I wonder if Jesus could do something about Peter's mother-in-law. And so they ask him. Jesus goes to her room, reaches out, picks up her hand, And she gets up and is healed. It's amazing. It's a miracle. She was lying there completely motionless. And suddenly she's up and good to go. And how does Peter's mother-in-law respond? You know, is it to to take some time because, you know, she just got better from an illness and take some time for herself? No, her response is to immediately go and serve them. To immediately start to wait upon them. And this response of service makes sense for those who follow Jesus, right? Because if we follow Jesus, then we mimic him. And we see later in Mark 10, verse 45, that Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if we follow Jesus, who came to love and serve us, then we in turn will also serve. And we see how Jesus continued to serve and how he continued to love as we move on in the passage towards the last story where he heals the leper. Jesus comes across this leper and the leper's calling out, asking Jesus to heal him. Jesus could have walked by because, you know, it's, he had a mission, he was there to preach, but he turned, he looked, and he had pity. He had compassion on this leper. Now, leprosy back then in the first century, it's not totally clear whether leprosy then is the same disease that we think of when we think of leprosy. But regardless, leprosy was probably some kind of contagious skin disease at best. And so for those with leprosies, they were ostracized because of Mosaic law. We read back in Leviticus chapter 13, anyone with such a defiling disease, meaning leprosy, must wear torn clothes, let the hair be unkempt, cover their lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. 
as long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside of the camp. And so how does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, you're unclean. No, he looks at the leper, has compassion, reaches out again, and touches the leper. He touches the leper. Now, picture someone with some, like, severe skin rash, not even, like, a debilitating skin disease, just a skin rash. Are you going to reach out and touch that person? But Jesus touches the leper. And not only is this kind of disgusting from a hygiene perspective, back in Leviticus, it says that, Leviticus 5, it says that those who touch someone who's unclean become unclean themselves. Jesus had such compassion and such love for this leper that not only does he heal the leper, he touches the leper and took the leper's uncleanness onto himself. We follow a Jesus who came to love and serve. And so what does this look like for us? Well, I think when it comes to serving, one of the difficulties is keeping our eyes up to see the world around us, to have compassion. Some of you guys know that I I serve as an assistant coach for my son Jeremy's soccer team. And one of the hardest things to explain to a second grade team is that not to, to not only keep your eyes on the ball, which is the focus, right, but to have field awareness, to be aware of, you know, where all your teammates are, where all your opponents are. Because if you're dribbling the ball, you need to see where your, your teammates are and where your opponents are to know who to pass to, if it might set yourself better uh, to score a goal. Or if you're on defense, you need to see where everyone is, not just where the ball is, to make sure that everyone on the opponent's team is covered. And in the same way, for us, it's really hard sometimes to keep our eyes up and around and to see the world. We become very focused on the ball, the task at hand. You know, for me, it's, it's being focused on a paper or, or a problem set that's due, or being focused on a project at work, or being focused on household chores that have to get done. But Jesus, even as he had his singular mission of preaching and bringing the kingdom of God, looked up, saw people like the leper, and had compassion on them. And you know, serving could be something as simple as, you know, telling the waitstaff uh, at a restaurant, offering to pray for them before you do your pre-meal prayer. Or it could be as simple as spending time hanging out with a difficult person at work that everyone else has ostracized. Or it could be cooking for someone who needs it. Mark Liu runs the meals ministry in our congregation, and that's one easy way to serve. Or it could be sitting with someone who's in crisis, lamenting silently with them. Because Jesus, we follow Jesus who came to love and serve. And so we serve also in following after him. So we've seen that we follow Jesus who has all authority, that we follow Jesus himself, not the temporary benefits of following, and that we follow Jesus who came to love and serve. And this leads us to serve also. This answers our two questions at the beginning, right? Or at least it's a beginning of of an answer of why do we follow Jesus? And how does following Jesus affect the way in which we live? And the thing with Mark chapter 1, the people in Mark chapter 1 is they just couldn't understand who Jesus was, right? And even today people can't understand who Jesus is. 
that Jesus is the Son of God, demonstrated by the miracles he performed back when he was here on this earth, demonstrated by the ways in which he answers prayer today, sometimes miraculously. And yet, as we grow in following Jesus, we realize that all these things that Jesus does here on this earth are temporary. They just point us to who he is. They point us to see who he is, the Jesus who has all authority. And because we follow Jesus who has all authority, then when we follow, we're not seeking to receive. We're seeking to follow a Jesus who came to this earth, who came to an earth to a people who had totally rejected God, who had totally rejected him, who were full of guilt and shame because of the disgraceful things that had been done because of our own human sinful nature. And yet rather than bring the judgment of God, Jesus came to love and serve. Jesus came to love and serve in ways that some people might see as scandalous. He touched a leper. He ate with sinners. And his love caused him to voluntarily go to the most shameful, most painful, most awful death possible. A public hanging in front of everyone in the worst possible way on the cross. And so, as we consider what it means to follow Jesus, we realize that we follow a Jesus who is God, who has all authority, and we see his authority at work in us as he brings the kingdom of God in us, as he has shown us the grace of God. And his authority, his grace, his work in us, lead us to serve just as he did. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for coming to this earth and we thank you for drawing us to you, for calling us to follow you. We pray that you would continue to work in each of us to grow us in our walk with you, that you would grow our heart to love as you loved, that you would break our heart for what breaks yours, that our vision of who you are would compel us to serve just as you served us all the way to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.